1: All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Patrick Reuter. We're at Dominio 4 in Carlson. It's July 8th, 2020. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, it's quite a pleasure to
1: be here. Thanks. Uh, First question, most important question to start it off with is, why wine?
2: Why wine? Well, I think we had this idealistic... When I say we, I always say my wife and I, Lee, who's part of the wine industry as well, Lee Bartholomew. So we always had this sort of idyllic... Mm -hmm vision of how we wanted to live our life. There was this point in time we were driving in the Cascades and we were going up and we saw this kind of farmhouse and it was a white farmhouse and it was it had horses out on the front and there were like these two people and they were sitting on the patio and they were, they looked like they were enjoying, they probably weren't, but they were they looked like they were enjoying the, like, that, that connected uh, way of life of agriculture and so um Early on at the University of Oregon, when we met, we had spent a lot of time just tasting wines in a local wine shop, and we realized in our mid20s that that could be a life for us. So that was that was all, all how it started and uh, and we've been kind of pursuing that for for 25 years now. There's the White House) <laughs> <laughs>
1: As you, as you kind of come to that realization, take me through the next steps in kind of making that a reality.
2: Sure, right. So we, it's about 1993, 94, and we're living in Seattle. And um, Lee's working in a restaurant, and I'm working at the Fred Hutch Cancer uh, Research Institute. And we just decide that we're going to um, go back to graduate school and um in wine studies or viticulture and enology so i can remember we needed some uh, experience and i can remember one of our favorite wines was andrew will and i just dialed the winery's phone number and and listened to it ring and then i just handed the phone to lee and she she said hello you know, we're interested in working. I'm interested in working So, for the harvest. So that was actually the first of our uh, harvests. It was in actually in Washington state for Andrew Will. And um, from that point, uh, we kind of dropped out of um, the US and went to Chile and we're going to spend about six months just getting to know the country, working in various capacities, some volunteer, some exploring wine, and we're living in Santiago in a, in a hostel and just looked up in the phone book again what wineries were there and called one of them up and they said, yeah, why don't you come in? We're looking for harvest interns. So we came into um, Viña Raceris, which is an old storied uh, winery in Chile and um, met the winemaker. he was from New Zealand and he said, "Why don't you meet me tomorrow and I'll show you around and He hired us both and uh, sent us off into the like the most remote part of Chile and, and wineries that you had to that were farmed by horses and you know it just really uh, started, our journey on on the most sort of rustic of um, of footings. So very very interesting. There were people lining up uh, to get paid, and they got paid their money for working in the fields, but they also got paid in bread. And uh, that should have been a really uh, a big clue to us that that's how we were going to get paid too <laughs> for most of it. <laughs> so. Our first winery we were put in charge was a 1908 bodega that um, was in the Buin Valley in in, um, or next to the town called Buin in um, Chile and it was the most interesting place to work because didn't have running water you had to divert the irrigation into the water upstream from the Andes to get any water and at one point the uh, power would turn off at about 6 o'clock in the evening, which meant that everybody in the um, facility would go out and play soccer until the, the sun went down. Which it gave us that idea that people and wine have a certain kind of culture um, around the world. And that culture is different in each part of the world that produces wine. And so that gave us the idea that we should, we should travel to some of these other parts and see what their culture is like, how they're making wine, what they think is important, uh, their grape varietals, and experience, um, experience their way of making wine. So we, we traveled to New Zealand. We made uh, wine in California, in um, France, in Burgundy, before coming back to Oregon in about the year 2000.
1: Was Oregon always the, the goal? Was being back in Oregon always the plan?
2: It's kind of a fluid plan. Yeah, it was like, where are we going to be employed? Um, after Chile, we came back to uh, the U.S. and went to graduate school at UC Davis, where Lee studied um, viticulture and I studied kind of a kind of a triangulation of viticulture, enology, and soils. So I did a thesis on terroir, or like the influence of soils and people and place on uh, agricultural products, and how you can accentuate or how people perceive those sorts of site qualities, people qualities in, in the products.
1: Tell me about the experience at UC Davis. Uh, having, having, having been into the, in the wine world already a little bit, what was the graduate school like for you? What were your kind of takeaways from that?
2: Takeaways from graduate school were um, we got to see a more the more industrial side, the more large scale ag, the more um, larger developments of how how the wine industry functions on a kind of a California basis. Uh, but also got really great one on one teaching, you know, small group teaching in the enology and viticulture program. Um, really small class sizes that allowed us to explore our own sort of um, avenues where we wanted to where Mm -hmm. we wanted to study you know Mm -hmm. being able to sit in a soil pit and travel around the state of california and look at different soils and talk about viticulture and winemaking Um, really top-notch experience Mm -hmm. you know really committed staff and professors that that wanted people to succeed and, rec- and really cared about um, uh, kind of tailoring their graduate experience to what they thought were important as well.
1: So along the way, tell me about developing your, your kind of own personal interests, and of course, Lee doing the same thing for the role you wanted to have in the industry going forward. Tell me about deciding what part of the industry you wanted to be in.
2: Yeah, so originally I thought I'd probably be in more a development in soils because I just really enjoyed um, the complexity of soils and the the life that's involved in a soil and how that translates into flavor. And so I originally thought that I would probably find myself in a kind of more vineyard development, um, assessment, analysis of soils and site. and um, It wasn't until we moved back to Oregon that I saw that sort of family winemaking character and like small starting it, you know, starting from your um, bootstraps and making your way up. And that was really appealing, I think, uh, for for me. So that was um, the first inclination to say, hey, why don't we why don't we start our own small thing? Why don't we start um, and how could we do this? And even at that time it was a little bit difficult to raise the kind of capital that you needed 2000, 2001, 2002 you know, to to find the capital and the resources to make that happen because we were just out of graduate school had no money at all so we had to be a little bit creative in, in finding those avenues to, to raise capital or work. Part of that was the Carlton Winemaker Studio uh, which was a wonderful place to share equipment, and um, so the initial investment wasn't huge, and, mm-hmm. and you could raise enough money to um, you know pay on a case-per-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our first way of raising capital was just asking some of our family and friends, and people who wanted to invest in a winery, to, to spot us small loans, like $5,000 to um, $10,000 loans and we would give them part interest in um, in uh, the product if they wanted it or just a straight return on investment. So that's actually how our first harvest went was five barrels and uh, it, was, it was a bit of a meditation compared to what some of the other harvests had been. I think in Chile we, we crushed more fruit than I think I've made in Oregon in one vintage. So it's, the scales were massively different, but very interesting place to, to start that family feel of, a, of the wine industry. And a very cooperative
1: um, environment, you know, people wanted to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those five barrels got a lot of attention is what you're saying.
2: Definitely, it was very meditative. I just sat over them and said, okay, here we go. Still there, I take Bricks and Temp three times a day. Wonder why they weren't moving so fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you, you had a little bit of, a little bit of uh, awareness of Oregon's wine industry, but coming back to it in 2000 era, 2000-ish, uh, and, and deciding you want to be part of it, tell me about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon's wine industry at the time, and, and where you kind of fit.
2: Yeah, so there were just a few wineries that, um, were of the kind of commercial size that I was used to in California and um, they were largely family-based and they had been here for let's say 30 years you know, 20 to 30 years so that was just maybe the first wave of initial investment outside of Oregon mm. like Archery Summit had just begun maybe five years before six, mm-hmm. six seven years before mm-hmm. so there's, there's just a a, a minor influence, the first kind of pulses from California, from well DDO, from France, um, that were just thinking about Oregon in a more international context rather than family winery context. So, there were still um, a few people that were gaining notoriety for some of them changing the viticultural and winemaking techniques that were sort of um, what Oregon relied on in the 60s, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. and 90s, really that sort of shift into other people coming in from um, different schools, mm-hmm. different wineries, um, uh, professionals that have worked in California, um, and you, you were just beginning to see that kind of influence on both viticulture, how the grapes were grown, how they were planted, what clones were available, what the orientations were, um, changing the viticulture to try to maybe capture a more um, a more international style of Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. a more recognizable, um, and not relying perhaps as much on like wonderful vintages to to showcase the character of Oregon, but um, just improving the way the farming was happening and the way the winemaking was happening to to, maybe just transition to another sort of generation of Oregon. I think that's a, around 2000 that felt like that transition was really palpable.
1: So you have this idea for a small family thing. You're going to start out small, you're going to have friends and family invest. So tell me about the logistics of getting that started outside of financially finding Carlton Winemaker Studio, finding grapes, finding, naming, naming, labeling, all that kind of stuff. Tell me about the kind of progression of, of, of your label and your brand.
2: So at the same time we were trying to convince our, my in-laws, these parents, that that Oregon was a great place to retire and perhaps buy some land and maybe even plant some grapes. So we, they lived with us for about six months in, um, well, three months, six months in in, in McMinnville, actually downtown McMinnville. Um, and at that time we just pursued business plans and looked over um, what it would take, that kind of investment, and how much we could afford, and what, what that would look like. And we really loved a lot of different grapes. We had just come from Burgundy, so we were making wine in Gervais-Chambertin, um, so Pinot to Pinot was a great trans- transition from Burgundy to Oregon, but we loved other varieties, especially Tempranillo, and we recognized right away that Oregon had multiple um, climates in which different sets of varieties could be planted. Mm -hmm. Um, Apart from just Pinot, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay in the sort of cool climate, Willamette Valley, we recognized that um, the Columbia Gorge might be also a very interesting place to grow grapes. we spent a lot of time, I remember, just jumping over fences and looking around to see if there's anybody seeing me and digging a quick soil pit to see what was the soils were like in the Columbia Gorge. Um, and having some really magical experiences, you know, like finding arrowheads on land and knowing that this was really Native American, sort of um, deeply historical Native American um, Crossroads of, of North America, and finding a little well, we found a little five by three note card that was that was um, pinned to uh, the local market in Mosier, and it said "land for sale." And we called that little place up, and and uh, it had been one of the twenty properties we had identified as good grape growing great exposure, great elevation, everything was sort of perfect for us. And uh, and we ended up buying that that piece of property. It was a vintage 1977 double wide which we moved the in-laws into and had a lot of great parties there. Great deck, just lovely. Um, and then planted uh, 10 acres of Tempranillo, Syrah, and Viognier. So Dominio 4 kind of the numerology of it is kind of four climates, four people. We use the labyrinth as our uh, symbol, and that has four quadrants, representing four seasons and the cycles of gr- making wine, growing grapes, and um, we worked with our family really. You know, it was Lee's family, my parents, my sister, and brother-in-law. Friends and family would come and spend weekends and put posts in and trip emitters, um, and that's how we that's how we started the the first uh, 2002 was our first planting in the Columbia Gorge, three clones of Tempranillo, four clones of Tempranillo, three clones of Syrah, and Viognier. So our idea was to stay here. Lee got a job at Archery Summit as a viticulturist, and we were gonna make our base here where it was more commercially viable to do that. And um, found Eric Homaker and he was gracious enough to let us into, and Louisa Ponzi into uh, the Carlton Winemaker studio, met the Lumpkins, Mm -hmm. uh, spent the next eight years there making wine, helping other people make wine, other people helping me make wine, real communal sort of thing going on there. Um, built slowly, like organically. Five barrels went to like 15 barrels, went to 50 barrels. And then it it sort of, Oregon was in a hot sort of, New York wanted a lot of Oregon wine. There was a lot of buzz around for Oregon Pinot in those days and you know, there was the distribution, side of the business was very diverse, so it was not as consolidated as it is now. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of little distributors that wanted to pick you up and sell your product all over the country. It was a really kind of exciting time for small, small uh, winemakers in Oregon. Um, and so we sort of grew that way. We grew little by little by little. People took their interest in wine or sometimes they, you know, we, we bought them out. Took on new investors and, and um, kept going, built up, um, you know, small, like thousand cases, fifteen hundred cases, and um, produced Pinot Noir, uh, Viognier, Syrah, and Tempranillo. Those were the the four varieties we went we went for. Um, again, part of that sort of dominio four numerology.
1: As you were growing uh, and, and looking for grapes outside of the ones you were growing yourself, tell me what you were, how you were finding grapes. What were you looking for? What, what were the vineyard sites you were looking for the people you were looking to work with?
2: Yeah, so um, a lot of the Pinot Noir sites, I just, I would talk with people. Part of my master's thesis was actually looking at doing a survey of grape growers and winemakers and giving, asking questions that related to the, how they thought about their own properties, how they thought about their soils, how they farmed them. And so I interviewed probably 150 people in Oregon, Washington, and California, and then dug soil pits in some of their, they would say, okay, these are the top five most unique vineyard sites that we have in this region. And I would go and, dig these soil pits and just do a physical survey of what those soils look like, mm-hmm. try to get some idea of like, oh, what is it that makes a unique soil? You know, like what makes a unique viticultural soil that then's going to produce these wines that are of immense beauty? And that gave me a, kind of a foundation to say, okay, what, what we're looking for, general sort of foggy notion of what's going on, you know, like what, what should I be looking for? And then talking with people winemakers like uh, Lynn Pennerash. Um, originally in the beginning we were um, getting a lot of fruit from uh, Mo and and um, looking for sort of exposed windy sites and then lush vibrant red-fruited sites and trying to get a diversity of different things that Pinot Noir shows us in Willamette um, Valley um, and some of those things would shift a little bit. Sometimes People would propose, like the Menifee, Silla uh, McClellan at the Menifee Vineyard proposed that we, uh, she wanted to bu- put in her own vineyard and mm-hmm. asked for help conceiving of that notion. And then we ended up buying fruit from her, which was just delicious fruit. I mean, just an amazing vineyard, yeah. Um, and, and other varietals were mostly coming from our own vineyard. So we did pick up Um, Viognier from Southern Oregon in early 2003 because we thought that that high elevation and the way that it ripened long ripening periods in Southern Oregon for these warmer white varietals like Viognier and retained nice acidity because of the elevation we found um, Quail Run and Michael Moore whose parents Don and Trouty were farming at that time, and we've been purchasing the same fruit since 2003 for our viognes And some just beautiful, beautiful wines are coming out of there. So that idea, conception of like expanding your world to Oregon and thinking different climates and pulling little things out from here and there, became kind of a signature of the way we were thinking about how Dominio Four should operate. Mm-hmm. And you can see that now. I think if you go into the tasting room and say, "How many SKUs or how many different bottlings can I buy here?" and they'll probably answer somewhere between 75 and 100 that are available for purchase. Going back to 2004, just because there are little things that were like this gem we want to keep because it's so special to this mm-hmm. place, and so we're going to bottle 50 cases of that, and we're going to and we're going to take. Uh, 50 cases and save it away for 10 years and re-release it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we want to see how it ages. And we want people to see how these things develop over time. Mm-hmm.
1: So you'd had quite a bit of, of experience in a lot of different places making wine, growing grapes at that point. Was there anything different about Oregon? Anything you had to kind of relearn as you were getting started here?
2: Um, it has some similarities, I would say, and some differences. I think that family communal is like the best thing about Oregon, really special thing about Oregon. I mean you see some of that in New Zealand where people are willing to help each other out really you know if, if they need the help they're there they're there for them. In a lot of other countries in the world there seems to be kind of a competition between your neighbor and you and what they're doing. We were doing a little you know, working in one country for some producers and they were doing a little espionage where the, I was working for one and my wife was working, Lee was working for another one and they were like, so what did they do when that truck (laughs) came in? And can you tell me about like spying on each other, you know, like wanted to know the secrets. Uh, But the things we had to get used to, smaller scale, you know, not having all the sort of deep cultural answers to things you know there's still a lot of exploration and how things are done and how we should be doing things what what's uh, a good a good next step to try to find out a best expression of Pinot Noir for example in the Mm -hmm. Willamette Valley Um, culturally I grew up here I grew up in Salem and so and you know Oregon's been my home so, culturally, not very difficult to um, get back into, you know. I think the wine industry culture has really changed since when I was growing up in Oregon. I mean, it was a much different Oregon culture, and the wine industry has sort of brought in a more international perspective, for sure.
1: Excellent. I'll ask you about that in a little bit. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Tell me about learning to... Th- sell your own wine and, and and adding a brand to the marketplace especially one with not just pinot noir where you were maybe introducing people to the varietals they weren't as familiar with
2: Yeah that was a steep road I think to to tell people uh, and at least initially that you know you just planted a majority of tempranillo in Oregon and you were planning to do that biodynamically and it was in the Columbia Gorge and all of those things were questions for people like what are you talking about Biodynamics in the Columbia Gorge of Tempranillo. I'm just setting my own market out. I'm, <laughs> nobody else is going to be able to compete in that. Right? Um, it 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 was a um, uphill battle in a lot of ways that way, selling wine around the country, um, explaining Oregon. Because I mean, we have this sort of idea that that people know really about our industry here, but there's a lot of Places you'll go to in the wine industry or in a restaurant, and, and people will say, okay, so where exactly is Oregon? You know, like, it's next to Michigan, right? Or something like that. And you'll be like, oh, I've got a long road to hoe today to communicate what I need to communicate. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. I mean, like, I remember going into some of the nice, uh, the best restaurants in New York City being just taken around and saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to this restaurant, but you're going to need a jacket. I'm like, I didn't bring a jacket. Dinner jacket? Like I got to have a dinner jacket? Yeah. Like you, they will not let you in without a jacket. And and it's embarrassing to take one at the, at the, the door with the ties, <laughs> you know, some of these places that you'll go are hilarious selling wine. You know, you just go into a grocery store the back room, turn the corner around the um, restroom, and then there's like a little stall with a seat and two tiny little cups, and that's where you'll taste your wine. But that person may introduce your wine to hundreds of people. It's Mm -hmm. one of those things where, you know, looks are deceiving. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you find, at at what point did you find you were doing less explaining about about the basics, about Oregon, about Pinot Noir? At what point did it kind of feel like what your perceptions of Oregon were when you started were actually more true, that people were excited about Oregon wine and were more knowledgeable about it?
2: Yeah, I think in the last mm, five to ten years there's been a real shift in um, I think people are just excited about the quality of Oregon. You know, they're just really, really excited to get something that's made in a small batch, or made by really careful, meticulous practices, and a real translation of the land. And I think people just, you know, they you see it in their eyes sometimes, they just brighten up and say, oh, we're going to try some Oregon wines, I didn't know we we're going to try some Oregon wines, this is great! You know, and they may not know Nobody knows the difference between Amhill Carlton and Eola Amity. Those sorts of nuances, unless you've been here, are really hard to translate into the, the broader market. Um, but um, unless you've been here, then those people, obviously, and there's a lot of people that have. But they, you can see that the, the message is really in the quality of the Oregon wines. And um, people have a true and genuine interest in exploring those wines around the country so we're we're sort of lucky in that in this last 10 years this wave of, of being able to bring those wines to the market
1: you brought up biodynamics earlier tell me about the decision to, to plant and grow biodynamically
2: so coming from Davis and seeing sort of a more large scale how do we affect viticulture in a very efficient, uh, growing a large acreage, making bigger lots of wine, um, selling those lots, we, we thought, oh we better try the opposite side. I felt like I wanted to try um, wines that were um, deeply from a place and having that sort of interest in terroir and soils, biodynamics seemed like the kind of thinking that really Immerse yourself in the place and, the, and made you pay attention to the details um, of those plants in that place or that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, a good way for me to sort of balance my knowledge base. Mm-hmm. and working through um, Europe, tasting wines, kind of interesting to um, go to region to region. Some of the most precise, beautiful wines we were tasting were out of Alsace, and a lot of biodynamics was going on at that time in the 90s, late 90s. And so, you know, just seeing it from a wine quality standard, standpoint, thinking, it's got to be something in this, let's try, let's learn at least. Mm-hmm. So. I think it was 2003, there was uh, a group of people started, um, once a month we'd get together and study biodynamics for the whole day, and the instructor, his name was Andrew Lorand, and he would come in and do some wild things, like set pieces of clay out and Transform the clay from a ball to a cube to a pyramid, and try to explain how that was the same uh, as spring, summer, and fall for a plant. Mm -hmm. And just interesting ways of reimagining viticulture, agriculture, thinking about the um, health of the soil. Working with compost, working with other people, making compost, and and trying to balance the sort of um, immune system of the plant rather than forcing it into a box, mm-hmm. um, nuancing it into its own ecology, thinking about how it it can in, that vine can integrate into that place. Um, Pretty interesting year of exploration. There's some really good people in there, mm-hmm. in that group. I think Sam Tan- Sam and Cheryl s- helped start that, but it was Harry, Edry Peterson, and um, Doug Tanell and Momom Tazi, um, Susan Silkoblosser. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty cool group of just. <laughs> People thinking about, not everybody was convinced. Every, uh, every, people just wanted to learn an organic way of making and growing grapes, making wine and growing grapes.
1: Obviously, that was pretty early on, biodynamics in Oregon, yeah. there was people doing yeah. it, but not, really. as that's grown and changed, has, uh, how have you kind of grown along with it? Have you Do you buy into it more now, less now, or are you still are you still kind of on the fence, or, or, or are you...
2: I've, I've read quite a few of Steiner's books, and some are um, really practical, straightforward. Some have a lot of deeper meaning to them. Um, and the uh, philosophy sides of, of biodynamics, sometimes um, hard to ascertain that kind of knowledge, you know? Like it's just kind of divined knowledge in a way. Um, but when you put a lot of it to practice you see results and I think um, sometimes those sorts of methods can lead science into figuring out what's really going on <coughs> um, and then can elucidate a different way to, to look at for example soils and and, and biodynamics especially with uh, compost and um, manures and, and the 500 prep really stimulate, I think, a lot of microbiological life and um, kind of cascade down um, through the ecology and produce really more stable basis for agriculture. Mm-hmm. So the, the way we've kind of, I've kind of shifted over the years is learn about it and try to understand where the philosophy is coming from evaluate what what kind of things make a lot of sense and have impact in in the vineyard, but then sometimes you just have to think on your own a little bit. And that is maybe what I explain as a, as a hybrid, you know, a kind of organic hybrid to farming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you're using biodynamic practices, you're using organic practices, but um, it's kind of interesting some of the things that you see there's, a, I've been reading a little bit about this, um, what is it called, Korean natural farming? Mm-hmm. Um, which is almost identical to biodynamics and developed completely separate, you know? But then when they talk about it, they talk about it in, in really translatable language, mm-hmm. which is fostering the ecology, you know? So that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm.
1: About, talking about this site and about the growth of of, mm. of, of this place here and, and kind of how it's part of the Dominio Four growth and overall ethos, I guess. Yeah,
2: originally we thought, okay, there's four regions that we can um, plant different suites of grapes in, then maybe we could have four different vineyards in one of each of those. And that's just ludicrous. I mean, I just don't have enough time in my life for that. But I did think it was a good idea at one time. <laughs> Um, so, the first one was in, let's call it the medium warmth, region maybe two, Columbia Gorge, which it's warmer than it is in the Willamette Valley, mm-hmm. so we could grow warmer grapes, but not cool climate grapes. So this place is probably the coolest of the four regions that we were conceiving of originally in, in the Northwest. And it is a wonderful agriculture, it's, been, it's had orchard crops on it since... Um, 1840's. So it was part of the first land grant it from, um, signed by James Buchanan. Uh, so it started in two sections. The original um, couple that came on one of the first wagon trains into Oregon territory. This is the site of the first um, school. She was one of the first teachers in Oregon and I was just right down at the base of the road there. And just it's just such a pleasure to be in a place that has, you know, grown orchard crops for so many years, you know, like apples, pears, cherries, walnuts, Italian plums, um, hazelnuts, grapes, <laughs> walnuts. It's, they've all, they've all just been things that have been uh viable agricultural products over time since the 18 you know mid 1800s Mm -hmm. and you can still see like these these uh walnut trees right here not only they planted on the western side to shade the house but they're also part of what used to be in a walnut orchard and that apple is the same thing it used to be part there's like 120 year old apple trees over there were part of The landscape when this was farmed that way. Uh, Italian plums down there, cherry trees are still, we can go out and pick cherries today. They're just, Queen Anne's are from the 50s, I think, and they're just beautiful right Mm -hmm. now. So it's nice to be part of a um, steward of a place that has had agricultural tradition and try to keep that going, you know, try to. Add your part to it. Mm-hmm. You know that barn has seen, apparently, from um, news register reports, that's seen a lot of parties. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be this like the site of a lot of dancing, and uh, it's just it's great to try to restore that, and bring it back up to where
1: people can enjoy it again. How did you come across it, the the property?
2: Um. It never went on the market. It was one of those things where uh, Joan Morris had been living here since the 90s with her husband Larry and she decided that Larry had passed and she decided to to move on and she spent about a year just kind of putting feelers out but wanting to meet people Mm -hmm. and so we were introduced to Joan and sat in the kitchen there and over the course of about a year got to know her and she wanted to make sure that our principles were aligned with her principles and that when she gave the farm over it was, just, it was going over to the right people
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, that was very important to her, more so than the price and so when we negotiated the price it was a very short conversation but a very long conversation getting to know one another mm-hmm. and so. Um, we still have pictures of the children that were raised there, and they're in their 20s. Um, her her nieces and nephews, nieces. And um, yeah, I just want to celebrate that sort of legacy of the, of the farm.
1: Tell me about developing your winemaking philosophy and, and kind of how it maybe changed over the years and how you would describe it now.
2: Mm, I think you... When you start making one, you kind of try to follow what people seem to be um, getting accolades for. So you, you try to sort of follow that notion of like, oh, I'll be successful if I'm like that. And I think over time, um, I've fallen more into a pattern of, let's see what this place is like. And let's try to make it the best place we can um, and let's if we can if we can get everything right we don't have to do anything very little um, but the really the, the beauty in the wine is it's just a lot like life it's like the tension it's like that when you feel the pull of something that pulls your emotions or your heart or your, and then you, you can think about it in a, a knowledge-based way as well, it's sort of like a tension between beauty and knowledge mm-hmm. and I think the wines need to be like that, they need to, they need to really pull. They, they don't need to be big and broad and in-your-face and easy to understand and slip away quickly They need to have a real length and tension and precision to them. And and so you can keep exploring them um, when you go back to them and back to them and back to them. Yeah. I think Siri wants something to say.
1: (laughs) I was like, who is (laughs) talking? That's awesome. So knowing that that's what you want out of your wines, how do you go about crafting that? You said the, the less you do, the better in your eyes in terms of if you do everything right mm-hmm. before, how do you create a wine then that is, that is tense and, and, and complex uh, by doing as little as possible?
2: Well, one, one way is in the winery, um, we try to create as many different kind of micro styles of lots as we can And we'll go fully de-stemmed, we'll have de-stemmed with 30% whole cluster, we'll go 50% whole cluster, we'll go 100% whole cluster, we'll go um, 50% juice, we're trying a new one this year, 50% juice, 50% whole berries, we'll go 80% juice, 20% whole berries, so we're just creating layers of complexity, wild native native indigenous yeast, whatever's coming in, in the building or on the grapes, we'll, we'll use that. We'll use some specific yeast for um, complexity. And we're just building all these different layers of complexity that goes into each barrel. So when we go back to those barrels, we can then um, use them in a, in a really rigorous blending. It um, takes forever. I'll be doing that later today, going through barrels and um, Trying to find their place in in how to build those layers in the wine, how to build that tension in the wine, and also in, you know picking right, picking when the when the fruit has that that fresh berry feel, where you, that's where you want to pick it off the vine is when it's just juicy and succulent, and it has that natural um, freshness to it. Um, that also helps, you know. And then there's just a million curveballs that come your way, in the, both in the vineyard and
1: the so that sounds easy, but <laughs> 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 just plant them and let them go for a year, and then come back and that is Yeah, that's just fine. Just, <laughs> just plant them, <laughs> harvest them. <laughs> you talked about all the different, all the different small lots, all the different kind of a, imaginative things you do. So tell us about the imagination series and, and about shape tasting. That's one of the more unique, oh, thing, right. unique, unique yeah. things you guys do. Yeah, that was a real inability of. I have a kind of a different mind. Um,
2: It's a more visual way of thinking, and I had a really hard time cataloging the wines that I would uh, taste, and remembering those wines um, with my notes. A lot of them were very simple, or like similar, I meant to say, kind of balanced front, you know, nice texture in the end, mid-palate is, you know, drops or something like that. And I just couldn't remember these wines from one to the other, so I started drawing in fact, the first wine I ever had in college so Bordeaux. I drew uh, a graph of it. That was the first thing I thought about when the intensity peaked over time, I grew drew the graph as the as the intensity of the wine to understand it, and then uh, started drawing symbols to represent different things, like fruits are always sort of round. It's hard to find a fruit that's not round, you know? Like, what, maybe a star fruit? Or you can cut a banana up and it's, it's still round. Um, and so we use the round symbol as, as per- perception of fruit. Mm-hmm. And then a line with an arrow that sort of, that pulling is sort of uh, elongation is kind of acid. So when you have a perception of acid you can, you can use the symbol of a line with an arrow, and you can vary that. Symbol can be big if you do perceive more acid or many small parts of acid or types of acid. Um, and then texture, structure, texture is the kind of phenolics or the tannin. So those are like dots. Um, and you can represent those in very fine things, wispy things, planky hard dots, or big chunky, you know, textural things so shape tasting evolved, I think it was um, uh, one of my friends uh, taught at the University of Washington and he he has a very interesting way of approaching life and uh, one of them was just to go interview people that he thought were doing interesting things and he interviewed me over I think two years and he kept asking me these questions about um, like why these symbols, or how are you doing these pictures and it may force me to like say okay well it's time, you know this is left is time, goes from the left to the right and um, that's your start, here's the middle and this is your finish and the, the, the um, other axis is your the breadth and your palate. so you can almost see the print of your tongue mm-hmm. as a shape tasting where things hit along that or how wide it feels and so started adding colors as well so colors can represent not just like you could have a red wine but it kind of gives you these green black flavors you know like basil is like kind of a green black sometimes you get these minty flavors so you can represent colors in these in the wines for the fruit or the savory elements and that sort of layering kind of gives you this kind of total picture of uh, tasting notes without words. You can add words too. Like, ah, that's, picks up an acid here, or it's very chewy, or um, things you can't represent, like licorice right there or something. like You can write in. It's a kind of a way of, of representing the, the tasting notes in a visual format. Um, I think that actually engages a lot of people more because the, the written descriptions can be kind of alienating, you know, like, what are they talking about? Like, mm, Maduro tobacco in a spice box? Like, I don't even know what Maduro tobacco is or what it smells like. and so, Why is that, like, three-quarters of your tasting notes are Maduro tobacco, <laughs> you know? So I think that helps people in a lot of ways, just sort of connect with the wine and they can almost visualize it themselves. Or, and a lot of times we teach people to just draw it yourself, you know? And after a a glass of wine, it becomes a lot easier (laughs) to draw it yourself. And we've got pictures and pictures and pictures of what people have drawn. And some of them are amazingly good, you know, really connect with shape tasting. So that's the imagination series. Every label is uh, a representation of the wine in the bottle, so that means that they have to be drawn for each painted for each uh, wine mm-hmm. so it's a um, up to how many thirty I think labels consecutive so they just go on and somebody's got to paint them so when when I'm tasting wine and I'm painting, my kids will come into the kitchen and they'll say, what are you doing, Dad? I'm, I'm working here. I'm working. Painting and drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> Work.
1: <laughs> Such an interesting concept when you talk about how it, how people react to it, how your, people who are not unfamiliar with it react mm. to it. Do you find more people who relate to... Wine the same way in terms of more visual and, and less literal. Do you find, or do you find that they're just they're playing along because it's interesting, or do you, are, you, are you finding people who, who who visualize wine the same way you do? I think actually there's some really great studies, and actually
2: we worked with a professor, Michael Pitts, at um, Reed College, and he and I collaborated on a small uh, project about how to taste, how to train people to taste wine. We used three groups: one just words to, for the training of the wine. Uh, how to think about wine. One um, (coughs) was no training at all and one was um, through pictures. And it was some interesting um, results where people actually learned quicker and had a better identification with um, fairly simple and um, moderate uh, differentiations within wine by learning through pictures. Because I guess there is a way we're sort of translating um, smells and flavors and sight through our visual cortex before we get to um, words Mm -hmm. so in in some cases I think you could maybe even think of it as a shortcut you're like why do words make sense for describing a flavor or a smell Mm -hmm. Um, and we just have such create acuity in our visual perception of the world, spacing is so acute for us, that I think it, it makes sense to a lot of people right away. You know, Some people are very linear in the way they, they have been taught or thinking about. It takes a little bit, but I have not seen anybody that just comes up blank. Like, can't draw it, can't think about it.
1: Most people connect, yeah. So, you brought out some some props today. Tell us about the the maps. Oh yeah, I was going to give about, these to you. Well, that's even better. Well, we're happy to have those because it is
2: an archive, right? Tell us
1: about tell us about the project and, and, and your role. Yeah.
2: In so this is um, I don't know if you've seen the Willamette Valley map.
1: The big one. The big one. Yes.
2: Yeah. So I was on the Willamette Valley Wine Board and felt like I wasn't I was contributing to conversation, but you know, people were taking the lead and Jason Lett was spending an ungodly amount of time in Salem and you know, like I'm like, what is my contribution to this force? Like, I've been here six years. What do I I gotta be able to do something? And there's no map of there was no map of just the Willamette Valley, you know that represented the vineyards and the soils together. There's lots of smaller maps and maps of um wineries. So I pitched the idea that we would make a soil map based on the parent material of the soil, um, the topography, and just vineyards planted. Not wineries. And it's it's a lot like the tradition of the Burgundian maps that you, you can see the Cote de Bon, Cote mm-hmm. de Um And so we try to sort of think about it in that way. And, and so they gave me some money to start that project. And I talked to um, um, Everyvine, Jordan at Everyvine, who's the cartographer, and, and he had all that information already. He, he cataloged all those. He had, he had put them into a GIS um, platform. And, but I had to convince him that some of the things that I thought would work could fit on a, could fit. Let me see, I haven't opened this up in a long time. And he said, no, it just won't fit. Oh yeah, this is it. So I wanted to get these little vignettes of AVAs set off in the bigger map. And he said, oh, no, you won't be able to just put those two scales together because they're just, they're, this is not a scale of this, and right. the two won't work together. And I'm like, Jordan, I think we have like $10,000 to do it. And he said, okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came back and he was like, oh, yeah, this was the first one that was like, Yeah, look, we can do this. We can put them off to the side. Um, And then we started thinking about um, how that would look in a bigger picture and um, developed them. This is probably a catalog of every single iteration of that, you know? And then going through and fact checking all these vineyards and putting labels to them and making sure that the people who actually own them, or actually still call those vineyards those things. (laughs) Um, And uh, it took about two years to get all the soil information correct, the boundaries correct. We didn't piss anybody off that was like, actually, I've been saying my soil was this the whole time, and you're saying it's that. (laughs) And so negotiating a little bit of that, the the soil political boundary. Um, But we did it. We got it. We, we, we got it, and we've been using it, and you can see it all over the place. You can see it all over the country, really. There are lots of places where it's sitting and unusual. So, I give these to you as a gift. Awesome. This is, this is the first drawing.
1: Before you realize, you need a bigger piece of paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look at that. That is amazing. And then
2: I don't know what's on the back. It says it's still out there. <laughs> it's like X-Files on the back going on there: Bark Arches, fin wave, Sea Space, Seascape. I don't know what this is. <laughs> 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 That's there we go. Yeah, there's Jordan's phone number at every line. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Jordan? How
1: do you, you, you mentioned the, the, the data was there, and, and you had to, how do you, how do you take on a project, that's such a big project, like how do you, you have to talk to everybody, you have to meet, you have to you go to all these vineyards, how do you do a, approach a project like that?
2: Well, he had had, he has this uh, geographic information system, so you can go in uh, online and go to your site and say... Uh, adjust the boundaries or say oh we just planted five acres over here and you can take a pretty basic tool to to sort of say oh these are the new boundaries and this is uh, they're planted to this grape and this clone and it's on this rootstock so it's it's based a lot on um, people going in and doing that and Jordan doing a lot of the work of saying okay this is where that from uh uh, aerial photography, from satellite imagery, um, you know, and then just proofing on the ground to making sure that's right. It did take a lot of time uh, checking that, and we wanted to we wanted to drill down. So if you look at the map now, you can see there's little green spaces that indicate where the vineyard is, but then you can see like little white um, uh, edges where the the blocks are indicated as well so you can see how the block the vineyard is laid out in a block setting as well and then what's under that as far as soil and there's the colors represent um, each color is taken from the representative soil profile Mm -hmm. so like the jory soil series or the 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 basaltic um, derived soils are have an orange color to them, because it's taken from actually the soil profile, one of the colors in the soil. So that was, that was fun. And, and there was a huge debate for a long time whether to represent the Willamette Valley this way or this way, because it's north and south, north, south. Doesn't make a lot of sense to people. But if it's this way and it's a five foot map, you can't see the top or the bottom, you're just staring at the middle. People got used to it. They didn't like it, but they got used
1: to it. It was a trip the first time I saw they it. You like it now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, takes a little orientation.
1: But, uh, Did you learn anything surprising about, about Oregon's soil or about the vineyards that you weren't expecting before you go in? Was there anything about the project that surprised you? I think just
2: seeing it all in one map and then seeing some of the earlier maps of... of uh, of smaller regions, you know, uh, you could see the growth and the density, and and you could see the density in certain places that you couldn't m- basically see without seeing the whole thing. Um, so that was that was pretty interesting, and you could see, um, you know, vast parts of the Willamette Valley ABA are not planted to grapes, and the clusters are fairly small in these areas um, but the amount of small vineyards is also really interesting to see where there's 5 acres here and 10 acres there mm-hmm. and 40 acres over here there's just not 140 acres or 500 acres mm-hmm. planted in the same place there's just, and that's a kind of a, a Burgundian articulation of place as well I think of where you, you take Pinot Noir in a very small area and try to figure out what its signature is, like that vineyard across the street has a different signature than that one, that has a different one than this one, and and we're going to find it.
1: So since we're on the topic of of looking at this, what what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? You talked about kind of your initial impressions and and some of the things you learned from this project. What will this map look like in the future? Mm. That's great. I hope to see a few more
2: um, really distinct AVAs, uh, sub AVAs um, within the map. You know, the that are uh, clustered together for a reason of quality. Um, I hope to see the same small density of vineyards that continues on. So we have this just intense multitude of. You know, this spectrum of, of small vineyards so we can keep pulling these little things, these little gems and find out that, I, you know, I just mentioned this articulation of space and there's no greater articulation of the planet than, than in Burgundy. I think these very small, tiny plots of land that people have been farming for a long time and know uh, what what that should be showing as a flavor profile. Mm-hmm. And if we can continue along that path, I think will be another gem on the planet where people can come and say, oh, I understand now. I've been tasting these wines from the other side of the street, and I, I understand mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. Because you're sensitive as a, a winemaker or a wine grower to these differences, and you've, you've spent the time to understand the differences and then show them correctly, or at least that you think they should be shown. Mm-hmm. You know, And you're not just putting a rubber stamp over them and, and washing them away into some uh beverage that can be sold in the marketplace. You're really focusing in on on the beauty of that specific place.
1: So uh, outside of outside of this, um, what are the other other changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you've been a part of it, roughly 20 years now of really being in the industry? What are the biggest changes between then and now?
2: Oh, I think you saw like a bit of a wave of ex- kind of overdoing it, kind of extraction, high alcohols and uh, extractive ways of making Pinot not look or taste like Pinot and I think we're sliding back into a more comfortable uh, uh, self-reflective state of where we are and and more balanced wines and, and not worrying so much about what other people think about us and just trying to find those, those gems. Um, I also think that part of the future might include more uh, elaboration on our culinary uh, pairings. I mean, we have such great uh, agricultural products in the valley that we should really focus in a little bit more on developing our own articulated culinary um, dishes, you know, products that, here's the wine that came out of the Willamette Valley or Oregon, and here's the cuisine that followed it. And it's not co-opting other people's cuisines, it's things that are developed here that reflect the place of the food and become um, paired with the wines. And so when you come to a restaurant in Oregon in 20 or 30 years, you'll see these, hopefully see these really beautiful collaborations between wine and
1: food that are signature dishes for the for this place so we're talking to you in july of 2020 so we're still in the midst of a (laughs) pandemic here and sort of finding our way along as we go Uh, i'm curious what has changed for for you because <laughs> you got your mask thank you <laughs> what has changed for you and your business here during the pandemic and, and and what and how has this perhaps changed your 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 kind of thoughts on the future?
2: yeah we're we're a small family run place so we're we struggle uh, on a national scale to compete with big brands and big that have consolidated power in their distribution so what we've seen is that Um, the people that come here and taste the wines are our customer base they they support us and they buy our wines and they they come back and they tell other people about us so um, we've seen a real um, strong connection with those people coming back and finding us and and just being in this place you know just feeling like this is their home too they can come sit around this outdoor living space or take a walk and pick cherries or sit on the front patio and you know, or spend time in the barn um and and I, f- I feel like the pandemic has kind of uh grounded people here and and made them realize that oh this is this is why i'm drinking this wine too is this place and the story are important to these wines as well mm-hmm. and um and, and then our ability to foster that connection, no matter where people are in the country, to reach out to them and make sure that they know um, that we can, we can send that, that, that bottle to them and make that connection happen to them in their own home.
1: What about for the future as, as you look ahead for, obviously we don't have any real timeline in place right at this point, are slowly reopening Mm -hmm. for the moment uh has it changed your future plans your future thoughts has it changed any of your future business practices or are you just kind of finding your way still
2: um it's weird you know (laughs) it's weird it's weird to to try to make that connection through a mask but it's it's dude i mean people are flexing and they're 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 finding that that connection anyway um, I, I think it will just I think it's opened up that avenue even more for us so we're going to continue along that path mm-hmm. trying to be a place where people can come um, connect with the place and 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 feel that that deep core of agriculture that's been here um, and I think that's what yeah, so that's sort of grounded us in that I think even more than we we realized before mm-hmm. so that's that's probably the path forward for us is to keep doing that you just do it better and it, and try to open it up more experience for people mm-hmm. um, one of the things we've just been doing is we have four acres of um queen anne royal Anne cherries and we didn't sell them this year we just um we left them open for people to go pick and almost every day people come and then they go up to the Four acres, and they pick cherries. I hope you guys do too, because there's just, and it's a wonderful feeling to know that there's just this abundance of fruit, and and feel like, oh, this place is kind of taking care of me. You know, (laughs) like I'm gonna take this home. I'm gonna make maybe a pie with this. I'm gonna eat these things until I feel sick, and and this is great. This is great. You know, we just, that's I think another good thing of this this pandemic is that allowing people to connect in that way, cook at home, and,
1: and slow down and be with family. I like the silver lining. That's an, ex- an excellent, optimist, optimistic look. I like that. As you look ahead for yourself and, and for Dominio 4, uh, do you have plans for the future in terms of uh, ch- changing production, changing varietals, any, anything, any projects on the horizon you're excited about? Mm. There's always um, projects in the winery of
2: how to make wine and make it better, I and mean, that's just like an ongoing process for us. I think um, we've always loved Grenache and we'll probably continue to explore more Grenache. Um, it seems to be uh, a, maybe similar in Pinot, like kind of parallels Pinot in a way that's maybe not as high acid or layered acid as Pinot Noir, but has a lot of different sight characteristics and sight and regional differences, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, we just see this is um, some new vines coming on. Um, probably some more building in the future. Continuing to um, restore that barn. Um, we're adding in a uh, an old hay dog chandelier. So it's a chandelier that looks like an old. Um, uh, it's the sort of these, what they call these dogs, and they is a trolley that runs along the rail of the, of the barn, and we've made one out of glass. So like bright orange glass, so it looks like a, looks like a hay bale, and uh, you can move it up and down and move it, as if it were a hay bale. So we're continuing to. Um, Restore that barn into its old kind of hundred-year-old feel. You know, it's it's not sheetrocked and pretty, but it's beautiful when you get in there. You know, it's really just you feel like maybe the way people did in that barn for Mm a hundred years. Are there future dances in that site? Definitely, we've had. Music, yeah, well, it'll be definite. We're going to party that
1: place again. <laughs> turn, it, turn the volume back up on it. Party like it's 1899. Yeah, party like
2: it's 1899. <laughs> awesome.
1: All right, I got one more question for you. We're going to go a little uh, philosophical for you to finish this off. So okay. tell us what what is wine's role in society?
2: Uh, wine's role in society is to um, connect with perception, to remind people... Uh, that they are living, breathing, and fully functioning sensory uh, beings in the world. And that one of our greatest pleasures is just to be able to utilize those senses, you know, to slow down, um, deeply smell or taste and think about those things and connect and not be intimidated by it, but be engaged and really feel the power of that because... You know when you walk by these roses on the way out, you're gonna smell three or four of them they are aromatic roses and and then you're gonna think about that aromatic rose and maybe you're gonna have a wine sometime and you're gonna you're gonna smell that same floral characteristic that you smelled in that rose on the way out and you're gonna say like "Ah look i'm connecting i'm <laughs> i'm I'm perceiving the world i'm 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 registering everything around me I'm not in my head so much anymore I'm just I'm actually looking at the beauty and feeling the beauty. That's that's the real, and, and and that spills off into food and slowing down with family and taking time to eat over the course of a day and really enjoy the the cooking and eating process and um, the senses of it all. And I think that's 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 wine's mm-hmm.
1: role in the world. Mm-hmm. Hey, pay attention. I love it. That's right. That's all the questions we have for you? Is there Great. anything I didn't ask today that I should have no, asked? No, we covered it
2: just about all I was thinking. And Excellent. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so, so much for your time and for your stories and for your lovely map gifts here. We're very excited about Oh, Cool. It. Great. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Right on. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.